Now, uh, if you turn with me to John chapter 2, we're going to be reading uh, the passage in which today's teaching is based. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And this is God's word. John chapter 2, the gospel according to John chapter 2, uh, contains two narratives, pretty famous narratives. The first half takes place at a wedding. And, and, uh, and that's where Jesus transforms water to wine. But the second narrative right here in this passage takes place at a temple. And John masterfully places those two side by side with each other. The two narratives appear very different on the surface. For example, uh, Jesus was invited to the, temp to the wedding, but here in this passage, he intrudes into the temple. The miracle at the wedding was a very private function, but here in the temple, in a very, very public space. Weddings, by nature, warm, soft. Temples, none of us have been in a temple, right? But temples, you imagine, rocky, cold, hard. Jesus is adding to the wedding, at the wedding uh, in Cana. Here, he's taking away from the temple. At the wedding, Jesus brings joy celebration. Here at the temple, he disturbs, almost angers. And he says, tear this temple down, and I will raise it again in three days. It's a hard saying. It's a difficult saying. It's a new series. That means that we need to take some time to chew on this hard saying, on these words, but when you do, you start to really, really get who Jesus Christ is. Because what the text is saying here is that on one hand, Jesus Christ, he may fill your table like a feast. But on the other hand, he may flip it over. On one hand, Jesus is going to bring warmth into your life, joy into your life. But on the other hand, he's going to disturb your life, disrupt your life. And if you truly experience Jesus whether it's his warmth and joy or his disruption in a way that angers you, the same person does both. You either have to love him or hate him, embrace him or reject him. Today, you're going to have to crown him or you're going to have to crucify him. 
Because one thing you absolutely just can't do here is say, well, he's a good person. He's a nice person, a good guy, a teacher, a role model. In verses 18 to 21, what Jesus does here is so disturbing, so perplexing. They've got tons of questions. These scholars at the temple. But nobody does anything right away. Neither the Jews, neither the disciples. Why? Because they're taking it in. They're chewing on it. That's what we need to do today. There's three lessons. One, Jesus Christ is our access. Two, he is our mediator. And lastly, how do we apply all that? That Jesus is our access and our mediator. What are the implications? First, Jesus is our access. Second, Jesus is our mediator. Lastly, the applications, the implications. First, we're going to look at Jesus Christ as our access. In verse 14, Jesus enters the temple. And uh, verses 15 to 16, he makes this whip out of cords and he clears the temple out. And the people, the Jews, they're outraged. Why? They're outraged because they dis he disrupted the temple. All the things that were going on in the temple. The good things that were going in the temple. The temple represented the dwelling place of God. You don't disturb the temple. You don't mess around with that. So in a sense... I mean, what is the temple? It's a place where heaven and earth meet. It's the intersection between the spiritual and the supernatural and the natural. Because all the ancients knew throughout centuries that there is a tremendous gap between God and his people. And you needed a bridge. And so you had priests. The priests were the mediators. Today, we think of the concept of the temple we think of a temple, we look to a temple, and we see them as relics, as obsolete, cold. And part of the reason for this is in the 1800s, the era known as the uh, Enlightenment, where they tried to demystify anything dealing with the spiritual, anything dealing with the supernatural. And they concluded during this era that Everything can be proven empirically. Everything can be proven or explained as a product of some natural cause. In other words, what they concluded was that the visible world, what you see, is all there is. There's no real mystery. There's no deeper spiritual reality. There's no deeper spiritual truth. Now, today, of course, times are changing. Recently, we're starting to see an influx into the church. It's the younger generations that are starting to challenge whether or not it's truly, whether or not it's really true that there is an underlying natural cause for everything. I mean, if you think about it, do all problems go away? Do all problems have a natural cause? Is there a scientific explanation for everything? Racism? Is there a scientific explanation for racism? Is there a scientific explanation for genocide? Is there a scientific explanation for violence and crime? Is there a scientific explanation for poverty? Even our neuroses? People are starting to conclude that there are things, there must be things that go beyond nature, things that go beyond science because Think about it. If this modern era, the most technologically, scientifically, economically, culturally 
educationally the most advanced in world history, is capable of greater violence and destruction and oppression in world history than any other society in the world that's ever existed, then one thing you conclude is it must not be because we lack technology or science or economy or culture or education. And people are starting to say that the main problem must be because we have become so disconnected from a deeper reality. The Romantics, you're an English major, the Romantics, Wordsworth, you know, Samuel Blake, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, John Keats, they've been saying that for centuries, that we as a society and as a culture are disconnected completely from deeper realities in life. What is the temple? The temple is that bridge. The temple represented a bridge, a gateway, an access point to spiritual reality, real reality, God, access. And access to God means what? That there is a reality beneath what's visible, that God can be known, God can be experienced, you can actually meet God, he can be encountered, you can have a personal relationship with God. You know what that means? Are you looking for power? Are you looking for intimacy? Are you looking for peace? This is access to real power, true intimacy, true peace, access. Now, the second point is there is a mediator. Jesus is the mediator. Verse 18, the Jews are pretty much asking, what authority do you have to do all this? And verse 19, Jesus says, tear down this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. But the temple that he was talking about was his body. In other words, they were asking him, where do you get the right to act like you own the temple? And Jesus basically responds, own it. I am it. Own the temple. I am the temple. The temple that he was speaking of is his body. What he's saying by that is that I am the climax of the history of the Garden of Eden, the Ark of the Covenant, leading to the tabernacle where God dwells, to the temple where God met with man. Once the temple was built, if you don't know what happened, God's glory filled the temple. The temple literally housed the presence of God. The glory of God, what you call the kavod glory of God. Kavod, that word in Hebrew, it means significance and substance and weight. The heavy brilliance of God. It came like a blazing fire and it resided behind this thick veil, this curtain in the temple. God's glory, his beauty, that beautiful brilliance, his significance was so glorious, so beautiful, so brilliant, so significant that even though the people wanted to see God face to face, if they got too close, they would be consumed like a fire. His beauty was so pure, so beautiful. His brilliance was so brilliant, it would consume you. And so he appears to Moses, how? In a burning bush. He appears to Moses and God's people. Where? At Mount Sinai. Moses says, show me your glory. And God, wanting to be with Moses still, places him in the cleft of a rock, 
so that as his heaviness and his brilliance and his beauty would pass by, Moses catches a glimpse of his backside. He was not consumed. In 1 Samuel, you have the Ark of the Covenant. It represents the presence of God. They would bring it out to battle against their enemies. And in 1 Samuel, uh, in 1 Samuel uh, it was in one narrative, it was captured by the enemies. The glory of the Lord literally was taken away. It departed from Israel. And when the pregnant wife of one of the evil priests in Israel hears of this news, she's so distressed, it throws her into labor and she gives birth to a son and names the son Ichabod. In Hebrew, the word is Ikavod. No glory. We've lost access. We've lost the presence of God. And in this temple, this fire come in, the Shekinah glory presence of God. And Jesus is saying, my body, I am the temple, the real temple. I've come to get rid of temples. I've come to obsolete the temple. He's saying my personal, physical self, my body houses the glory of God and you get to see me face to face. Just as the temple holds or held God's presence, my body houses the presence of God and yet Jesus was human, which makes him relational. You can touch him. You can see him face to face. You can develop a relationship with him. Jesus was also vulnerable, killable. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That Hebrew, that Greek word dwelling there is the word templed. He tabernacled with us. He templed among us. Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus Christ, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And so Jesus says, I am the kavod, glory, presence of God. Immeasurable power. Ultimate glory. You want real reality? Jesus says, I am present here with you in the flesh. Every other temple, you have to bridge that gap. You have to sacrifice your body. You, it's your blood, your sweat, your tears, your anxiety, your depression. You have to make the sacrifice. You have to pay the price. There are a lot of people here in this room still, a lot of people watching on live stream today, they still believe that that's how you still get a relationship with God. When you do something wrong, you got to punish yourself. You got to make the sacrifice. You got to serve. You got to work. You got to act right. You got to earn God's favor. Then you are acceptable before God. But Jesus is saying, In me, I am the sacrifice. I paid the price. I am the great temple. I am the high priest in the temple. I am the altar of the temple. I am the lamb of God sacrificed in the temple. I bridge the gap in every dimension. I bridge the gap. Think about this. No rabbi or priest or prophet or religious leader ever dared to make that kind of a claim because they can't 
bridge the gap. They couldn't make that claim. They can't bridge the gap. But when Jesus Christ is on the cross, what happens? When Jesus was on the cross, in that moment, the veil that represented the divider between God and man, that thick veil, the curtain, separated which separated the innermost part of the temple where God dwells, was actually torn from top to bottom. That's what it says in the Bible. That the, that the holy temple curtain had torn from top to bottom. Notice, it wasn't from bottom to top as if men grabbed it from the bottom and tore it through the middle. It wasn't like that. It was as if God himself took the temple veil and ripped it so that it would tear from top to bottom. God had done the work. He bridged the gap. How did he do it? On the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am the ultimate high priest, the only one who has the authority to enter into the holy place, see God face to face, and not be consumed, and yet here I am. I'm being consumed. I've been totally rejected, forsaken by God. The glory of God has departed from me. In other words, Jesus Christ becomes the true ikavod. He is the true kavod. He is the true glory of God, and yet he becomes the ultimate ikavod. And so the glory presence of God departs from Jesus. Why? So that you would have the glory presence of God. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you could be accepted. Jesus Christ lost the access of God so that you can enter in and have unveiled access to God. Jesus Christ lost the power, lost the intimacy of God, lost the peace of God. Why? So you could have power, the power of God, intimacy with God, the peace of God. The only prerequisite in this room that is needed is what? That you know you need it. That's the only prerequisite, that you want it, that you thirst after it. You need to see the gap. You need to see the gap. You need to admit that you have been trying to bridge away to gain God. You know why we're so desperate for the approval of other people? Scholars will tell you that there is a spiritual connection between your desire for approval from other people and some supernatural desire to have meaning and significance in the universe. That's why we work so hard for meaning and purpose. We're trying to bridge the gap on our own. And you know what you're doing? You're sitting in the temple and you're negotiating with money changers and merchants to buy your way, to figure out a way to make the sacrifice on your own and find some semblance of peace or meaning or significance. You want the beauty, you want the acceptance, you want the love, you want the intimacy, you want the power. Jesus Christ says, I bridged the gap once and for all. What are the implications? What does it look like if the gospel actually came in and shapes you? I'm going to give you a couple things. One, the first thing is, 
It changes your view of God forever. It changes your relationship with God forever. Verses 13 to 17, Jesus, he throws out the money changer. He throws out the, he drives out the animal sellers. Secular scholars, commentators often say that this is Jesus protesting the commercialization of religion, right? I'm sure a lot of you think that's how you interpret this text because you read it or watched it somewhere, right? Uh, that, that Jesus was protesting the commercialization of religion. But think about this. People... Jews came from all over the world. It was like a pilgrimage to come to the temple, a privilege to be able to enter into the temple and make a sacrifice. And, and so, but you can't come to the temple without a sacrifice. And these people are traveling from very, very long distances with animals. And it's incredibly risky because if an animal died along the way, which happens, right, is a very, very dry desert place, right, super hot, but if an animal died on your way, you'd be defiled. You couldn't enter into the temple. You'd travel all that way. You couldn't get in. And so they had merchants selling you animals. They had money changers. It was like a foreign exchange because people were coming from all over the world. This was a service. It was a good thing for everybody. The issue was not so much that they were selling things in the temple. The problem is the model was provisional. It was temporary. It was never it was never meant to be a forever thing and certainly is not personal. And so what that demonstrates is a mechanical relationship with God, a transactional relationship with God. And what Jesus is doing by incarnating, he comes as a man. He comes in human flesh. He bleeds. He cries. Jesus is saying, I am the true temple. And through me, now you have a way to get a real relationship, a personal relationship with God, an organic relationship with God. I came to be the ultimate sacrifice for you so that your trans you can put to death your transactional relationship with God, your mechanical relationship with God. And that's why on the cross, he's crying. And that's why on the cross, he's bleeding. And that's why on the cross, his skin, his body is being torn apart. Because it was organic. He did it in your place. So intimate and so organic is the faithfulness of Jesus that he takes your place and in union with him, you have life as he dies. You know what that means? Because if or because you have a personal relationship with God, you can relate with him personally. It's no longer a marketplace. What do I mean by that? There's no more negotiating with God. There's no more deal-making with God. I'm coming admit it. Growing up, all of you made deals with God. That's how you view God. If I live right, God will bless me. That's a negotiation. That's a deal. And if you live that way for the rest of your life, it will ruin your life. It will ruin your view of the church. It will ruin your view of Jesus. Life will fall apart. It doesn't work. And you don't have to work for it. The gospel says you receive. Does it take any work to receive? No. It's a gift. No longer a marketplace. Jesus says now this place it was meant to be a house of prayer. 
Your prayers can be honest. Your prayers can be intimate. It doesn't matter the setting or the circumstance. Your prayers can be a delight in your relationship with God. There are people here to this day, I don't care how long you've been here, you need to hear this. There are people here right now, you need to rid yourself of your old view of church because many of us today still look at the church the way we look at the temple because your relationship with God is still transactional. You're not coming to God for God. You're coming to God for things. You want things from God. You know what a transactional relationship looks like? I work to earn God's favor, and then I pray. And in my prayer, I ask God for certain things, and I expect God to answer because it's transactional. I give, he gives, right? Give and take. He answers, then he demands things. He demands things of me, so then I got to continue to work, and so on and so forth. And it lacks, well, it lacks intimacy, God wants you to hear. It lacks, you lack intimacy with real intimacy. And as a result, when you lack intimacy with real intimacy, true capital I, then you start looking for intimacy elsewhere. You lack power because you left true power and start looking for power elsewhere. You need that promotion. You need that job. You need to be able to tell people, I made it. I arrived. I don't care if it's your parents who sacrificed their hard-earned dollars to get you there. There's something deeper than that. Oh, we need acceptance. We desperately want to be in, don't we? The gospel tells us what? The temple curtain is torn. You are in. And to the degree that you believe that, you will walk away from the power that the acceptance of other people has over you. Now, you all look nice. You all on the first row look really good. And you all sit there and say, nod your head, take notes. I get it. Will you practice that tomorrow, though? The reason why we're so anxious, the reason why we are so tired, the reason why this generation, more than any other generation in history, is described as the anxious and depressed generation is because you are looking for power and intimacy and approval further away from true power and true intimacy and true approval. And you're coming to God, maybe even today, for things. And you're not coming to God for God. What do you do? Don't just come back to the relic. We just talked about, if you were here in the prelude, how old this building is. Don't come back to the relic. Come back to church. Clear away the tables in your life. Clear away the market in your life. Stop the negotiating. Stop the deal-making. If you're doing it with God, you're doing it with each other. You're doing it with each other. And it starts with Jesus on the cross, forsaken for you, sacrificed for you. Make it personal. 
to the degree it becomes personal, it will melt you into worship. Second application or implication is that you can rid yourself of distractions in your life. Now think about this. In the temple courts, there were money changers and there were animals and it was really loud and it was really smelly. And people are arguing and coins are flying around and uh, people are negotiating, making deals, they're haggling. It's very distracting because the thing is, that place was a court. It was a court for the Gentiles. That area was a court for the Gentiles who came, who wanted to come into worship. The deeper you got into the temple, it was only reserved for Jews and then priests and then the high priest. And so people in the outer courts who did not know God but wanted some experience of spiritual or deeper reality in their lives, they would come and hang out in this outer court. And yet it became this distracting place, this loud and arguing place. It of the church, doesn't it? Lots of people fighting with each other and gossiping and arguing and fighting with each other and negotiating and dealing with each other. It gets really distracting, doesn't it? Lots of activity. There are people, you know, lots of us, who think that they're doing a service by bringing people into a culture by bringing new people into our culture, the culture of those who experience intimacy with God without actually leading them to an experience with God. I'm going to say that again. There are people in this room who equate bringing people into the culture of those who experience intimacy with God without actually leading them to an experience of God. And so there's lots of activity, there's lots of energy, lots of celebration, but it's just social. It's just noise. No life. I'm going to give you a piece of advice. If you're a part of that, if you're leading that, if you're driving it, focus on what's important. <laughs> the church social culture in the context of community, is sometimes the worst thing for a Christian. Clear away the distractions and focus. Third, you got to ask yourself a question. Because everybody here, the reality is we're all sitting in any moment in time we're all sitting in one of two temples, right? So this is an implication. We're all, because of the gospel, all of us are in one of two temples, either a temple of fear or a temple of grace. What do I mean by that? If either you're coming to God, but what you're really trusting in is your success, what you really place your investment of time and blood and sweat and tears is your attractiveness to somebody else, then you are, it's going to build up pride in your life and it's going to build up fear, the fear of what if it doesn't happen, the fear of what must I do to get in, because in the end you will never know where you stand with other people and you will never know where you stand with God. But if you're driven by grace, those who are in a temple of grace, then you will believe that you, at any point in time, are the least deserving person in this room. But you're here, and you are in, and you're experiencing 
God's faithfulness and grace through Jesus. And if you're really trusting in that, it's going to fill your life with gratitude all the time. Fill your life with humility all the time. Fill your life with joy all the time. That is spiritual maturity. I'll tell you what spiritual immaturity is. Spiritual immaturity is marked by a deep undercurrent of self-justification that ruins your joy, so you've got to generate, fake it. And it's constantly working to shape you into a works-oriented person, which is why we're so anxious and so depressed. And it's driven by spiritual paranoia because deep inside, you still live like you're on your own. It's not the veil of the temple that needs to be torn. It's torn. It's your veil that needs to come down. Spiritual maturity gives you a confidence that's based on Jesus' finished work so that you can accept failure. You can accept critique. You can accept loss and not get hung up on your own works then to compensate for that failure or critique or loss. Instead of working, you're resting. Instead of trying to prove yourself, you rest in Jesus Christ who says it's finished. You can focus on what's important. You want to know what Jesus Christ focused on? I mean, you want to talk about distractions. He was on the cross. He was bleeding. He was in extreme pain. He was suffocating. There were people around him jeering him, rejecting him. His friends had departed from him. They had, they had run away from him, abandoned him, betrayed him. God himself had turned his face away from him. But in Hebrews 12, the author says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. You see, the pain and the shame, those were the immediate distractions. But it was his joy that kept him focused. And you know what that joy was? For the joy set before him. There was something on the cross that in the midst of the pain and the distractions burst him into a heart of joy knowing that God had turned himself away forensically from him. So all he had was still his trust in God because God was gone. And yet there was still an undercurrent of joy in his life that was before him that enabled him to endure. You know what that joy was? What could possibly have been worth all that pain and shame? It was you. You were that joy. You were worth all the pain. You were worth the shame. And so even though he's in suffering, and even though he's been forsaken by God, he still trusted God. He still called him, my God, my God. 
It was for his glory. Which temple are you in right now? Temple of fear, selfishness, self-justification, or temple of grace, faithfulness, love. Lastly, Jesus then becomes your authority. In verses 18 to 22, did you say, where is your authority? But, I mean, they could have arrested him. They could have charged him. I mean, he caused a ruckus at the temple, right? But they didn't. You know why? I mean, Jesus was outnumbered. Why did they just pounce on him? It was because of his presence. There was something about it. People knew, they sensed his authority. They sensed that he had a right to do what he did. And so they cleared out. They got out of his way. Imagine someone comes into your house one day and uh, starts to just move furniture around your bedroom, walks right into your bedroom, right, the most private room in your house, right, and they just start moving things around, right? You would say, what right do you have to do this? Because only one person would ever have the right to come into the most private part of your house and start moving things around, and that is the one who owns the house. The author, that's where you get the word authority. Jesus says, I have authority. Tear this down, I will rebuild it. That's an author talking. That's a creator talking. That is an owner talking. The temple represents the motivational center of your life. Your heart and your brain controls what you want and what you do. In the same way the temple represents the heart of a community, what an entire people want and does. And Jesus is saying, I am supposed to be that center. What that means is that if you are a Christian, Jesus Christ has taken residence in your life, in your life. You can't get more intimate than being in you. He has taken residence in your life. He has bought you with a price. He owns you. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. And what that means is, if he wants to, he can arrange, he has the authority to arrange your life as he sees fit. What should your response be? Submission. He's the king. It's very important. Very important. Jesus is saying, I am the new authority in your life. That's very important because if you don't submit to Jesus, then it's because you've already submitted to something else as your motivational center. Something We all have something that's driving us, motivating us as the core thing that we want in our lives. Jesus says, submit to me. Every other center makes you work to get it. Submit to me. And you will freely receive it. If you, if you obey God just because it makes sense to you, you're not really submitting to God. You know, those of you who have children, many of our parents, most of our parents are online watching. If you're, if you're children and, and you're, you tell your child to do something and they say, why? The answer really is appropriately because I said so. I am your authority, Right? 
But if they say, look, I just, they start to negotiate with you. I just want to understand the reason. If you tell me the reason and I understand it, then I'll submit, then I'll obey. Your answer really should be, theologically, right? That, well, then that's not really obeying because the only person you're obeying is yourself. If you need to understand it to obey, you're obeying yourself. You're submitting to your own sense. Do you always understand why God does anything? We don't. Sometimes we may not. Jesus Christ on the cross trusted fully God's purpose and plan, and yet he went to the cross. God had departed. He's there dying and bleeding. The visible reality says, stop trusting God. And yet he still trusted. And God exalted him to the highest place, says the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Trust in his work. Trust in his word. And you will have new life. You will have new relationship. You will also have a new authority in him. Some of you, you're saying, I did that. You need to do it today. You need to hear that more than anybody else in this room then today. Trust again in his work. Trust again in his word. And you will have life renewed. Let's pray.